and welcome to the Store Can I podcast for solo parents and those considering solo parenthood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo parenthood coach and solo mum to my five-year-old daughter. Series six of the podcast is focused on solo parenthood stories and speaking to a range of solo mums about their path to parenthood. Are you struggling to let go of the fairy tale idea you had of how life would be? You can't help but think everything will be better or easier in a partnership. Well, this month's Thriving Solo episode is for you. I chat to the amazing Marianne Power all about reimagining our happy ever afters, why society prioritises romantic relationships over platonic ones, and how we can challenge what makes us happy and how we structure our lives. If you're trying to decide if solo parenthood is for you, or you're a solo parent, but can't help but compare yourself to how things would be in a partnership, make sure you have a listen. It's uplifting and inspiring hearing Marianne's take on things. It's available as part of the Thriving Solo membership. Today's episode is with solo parent to twins, Julia, who shares her story of solo parenting. Julia, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. You're welcome. Before we get started, do you want to just give yourself a little bit of an introduction? Um, Yep. Okay, so my name's Julia. Um, I am about to be 40, which is a bit of a shock. I've got four-year-old twins who turned four a week ago. They are both donor-conceived through IVF. Arthur was diagnosed when I was 27 weeks pregnant as having a complex heart condition so that has been a a big factor in how we live and uh, our life so far really. Before we go into that can you talk me through your decision so when did you start thinking about solo parenthood was it a big decision did it take long or was it something that you've always thought that you might want to do? So it was always in the back of my head that if I didn't meet the right person then I would do it on my own it was always being a mum was always something that I was going to do one way or another um and then life changed quite drastically for me um about five years before um I had my children in that my brother's four children were taken into care and placed with my quite elderly parents and the youngest was three and a half and the oldest was um 11 So a lot of pressure was put on me by social workers to move back from London where I was living and to support my parents or take primary care of the children. So I did move back. So I gave up my life in a lot of ways and it made it really difficult for me to then meet somebody because actually I wasn't very flexible. I ended up moving in with my parents and building like an annex onto their house, which has been brilliant and is perfect, but I wasn't then willing to move out of my annex. Um, when I did meet people, um, I wasn't willing to give up the children I already had because I had a huge role in their life and they were quite tricky and I, my parents needed my support and we were co-parenting them. Um, so I was really picky about the kind of people I was meeting. And then I'd had a procedure um, for polycystic ovaries where they'd like laser drilled my ovaries to get rid of lots of cysts. And they'd said at the time that I needed to keep an eye on my fertility because of the procedure so I had um at 34 I had a um fertility check and they said that I had a year to have a baby or my chances of having one went from 
0.5% to about 3%. And that was with full IVF. Wow. This is one of the reasons why I do always advise people to get the fertility test, because that is very clear data <laughs> that helps you make a decision, yeah. I guess. And there was no, so there was no decision. I was like half, I was dating somebody, but I was at the very, very beginning stages of dating somebody. Um, there's no way that I would have put a relationship under that kind of pressure. I didn't know him well enough to go on holiday with him. I didn't know him well enough to contemplate having children with somebody. So I um, I sacked that off and said to my parents that that's what I was going to do. And they were very supportive. Um, my mum was quite sad because she said that she wished that I would have somebody to share it with, but wholeheartedly supported me in it. The clinic originally said that I could try IUI, that it would be less invasive, but, but that they didn't think it would work, but that it might be a good you know if I wanted to um so I did I did do one round of that um which didn't work and then I went to IVF on quite strong meds and they took um 16 eggs but only six fertilized and of those six only two made it to day five so I had both put back in right okay so that that's the twin question then. So you yep. got two embryos in. Yep. And what um, did they say the percentage was likelihood that you'd have twins? Did they tell you? I don't I don't remember, but right. on the table, I said that I wanted them both put back in. And it was a financial thing. If I got pregnant with one and had a successful pregnancy, I couldn't afford another maternity leave. So for me, it was either do it then or not do it. I couldn't if I'd had three or four embryos I would have saved them and I would have waited years and years to to then try again you know when I could afford to do it but I couldn't afford to pay to store the eggs and then do it again on knowing what my finances would be so I made the decision that actually if there were two embryos then I'd put them both back in they were very good grade embryos and on the table they gave me a photo of both of them and said you do realize that there is no reason that these will not stick like they are very good embryos like there's no reason they won't stick and I was like yeah it's fine it's fine I can do twins and they did stick and I I do do twins love it but and and quite a few people that I've um spoken to who've got twins have said that yeah there was a chance of twins and I I was quite open to that some people have said, I absolutely didn't think <laughs> I would have twins. But I think if if you know that there's that chance and that you're happy with that, it's almost like it sounds a little bit like it's now or never sort of thing. You know, well, let's go for it. Was that a bit how you felt? Yeah, definitely. And I, I really couldn't afford another round of IVF. I'd put my IVF on a credit card, knowing that I would transfer it to a loan if it worked. 0% interest credit card so I knew that this was my one chance so I just threw everything at it and I kind of thought well if it works it works I didn't really consider that there could be more complications in pregnancy I knew it would be hard but I just kind of was like okay well I want them you know I can do it I'd worked as a night nanny and a nanny um, before I became a teacher so the whole baby thing didn't bother me but I'd never done twins so I kind of felt that actually it would be nice for me in a way that I would be as unprepared and unexperienced as all the other parents. I love that. That's brilliant. 
And I just want to pick up on something you said before. So you said that your mum felt a little bit sad for you. And I just wanted to pick up on that because I think that's really a common thing that many of us get from our parents. I'm still trying to get my mum to understand she doesn't need to be sad for me. I'm like, mum, come on. I think that our parents' generation, even more than us, grew up with this you know, drilled into them that happiness was only going to come from a romantic partner, that we're going to miss out on having one specific person to do it with. Does your mum still think that or do you feel like she's changed? No, I don't think so. And I think for her, it was a bit different in that she had me and wasn't in a proper stable relationship their relationship broke down um when she found out that she was pregnant with me he basically said I don't want any more children um and she said well I'm pregnant so that's it and he said okay so that's it so for her I think she really missed having somebody to share raising a child with until my stepdad came along who I adore and so I think she wanted for me what she hadn't had Right. And it's always shaped by our own experiences, isn't it? So that's understandable then. Brilliant. And did you have to let go of an idea of doing it with somebody else or was that quite easy for you? It was quite easy. I'm quite single-minded and quite determined. And so I was very much like, okay, this is what I want to do. And I had spent years, you know, falling in and out of love with people, sometimes unsuitable people um trying to find Prince Charming in a perfect relationship and I think when they told me that it was do it or don't ever do it I kind of just went well there is nothing that I want more than to be a mother I came to the realization that actually I was only dating these people as potential parents not as a potential partner um, that was my, would they be a good father? And it just made me realise that actually I, I didn't need that. And now having Arthur and looking at so many cardiac parents going through issues because the relationships are so tricky, because having a cardiac, none of the relationships that I've ever been in would have survived Arthur. He is, you know, the light in the room and I adore him and Violet. But the journey that he has taken us on, none of the relationships would have survived. And I love that you know that because there is a school of thought that fantasises that when we've got it hard going through a journey, wouldn't it be so much better with a partner because they would be there to support us? And I wholeheartedly agree with what you said. So many people... Uh, they can't survive that because it's really, really difficult and you don't have necessarily the the right support. And, you know, there's other challenges, isn't there? Because if you're going through a difficult time, there's navigating that with that partner. But but a lot of people fantasise that it would be easier with a partner. And I love that you're like, actually... I don't think it would have been easier. I don't think that we could have made this work. I think it's really important for people to hear that. I couldn't have looked after anybody else's emotional well-being. I didn't want my children 
who were growing up in a hospital to think that it was normal for their mum to be sitting in a corner rocking and sobbing most of the day. So that is what I did. I literally cried in, in the night when they were in bed, in the shower. I did not cry in front of them. And I just kept that smile in place. And I couldn't have done that if I was trying to worry about somebody else all the time and how they were coping with it and how their emotion, you know, what they were doing. I could do it because actually... I just kept going because I knew it was what was best for my children. And, you know, they are happy, well-adjusted, you know, as well as you can be with ASD. Children who have been the light of the ward when we've been in for long, long periods of stay. But I found it really, really hard. But I was just determined that my, how I was coping with it wasn't going to affect my ability to parent them and to smile and sing silly songs and stuff like that and I just couldn't have done that if I was worrying about somebody else and did you have anyone to support you at all did you get support from anywhere so my mum my mum was amazing and I had lots of friends who messaged and stuff like that and who would occasionally come down but we live in Milton Keynes they were born in Oxford so we were in Oxford for seven days then we moved to Southampton we were in Southampton for a month where Arthur had two surgeries and a long stay on in PICU. Then we moved back to Oxford where we lived for four months. Then we went back to Southampton for prep for another surgery. We had like a gifted month at home, which was very unexpected on home leave. And then we went back into hospital again and we were in hospital then for another two and a half months so they were born on the 7th of May we came home at the beginning of September for a month went back in at the beginning of October and came home on Christmas Eve wow and when you say we so did you have to take Violet with you for the, yeah. for the so you were looking after another baby Wow. Yeah. So because I was breastfeeding, I could keep her with me. So at the beginning, I wasn't allowed to stay with Arthur. So in when he was born, he was in um, the neonatal unit. And then he was in the nursery in Southampton. Um, because he was tube fed, and because I had Violet, I wasn't allowed to stay overnight with him, even when we moved back to Oxford. And then when he was four months old, they took the tube out, because a doctor decided that he'd reached his goal weight for surgery, the next surgery. So they took the tube out. He said that he would take a bottle because he'd seen him ha having a little bit of breast milk when I'd gone out with my mum and without my mum and without Arthur for the day. And so he was just like, I saw him. He was feeding. It would be fine. He'll he'll take a bottle. Yeah, he did not take a bottle. So I got a phone call at four o'clock in the morning to come down to the ward to feed him because he was hysterical. Um, and from then on, Violet and I lived in the ward, too. So then, um, unless he was in intensive care after surgery, Violet and I would live in the ward. And when he had surgery, they'd move him back onto the ward, but he should have gone into a high dependency unit. But Southampton's got Ocean Ward, which is a children's heart ward, and they've got um, a high dependency room. So I would get back to the ward with Arthur, and there would already be a cot set up in the corner for Violet. Wow. So the majority of your maternity leave then was basically in hospital? In hospital or COVID. 
yeah and obviously Arthur was very vulnerable so we were told to shield and to be really careful so I think we had about a month we came home on Christmas Eve the cardiac nurses who are like our go-to who look after us who I ring regularly to get answers to random questions um they were like don't go out he has been really poorly don't take him to any classes like be really careful who you socialize with just be at home and let him get better which is what I did and then they kind of gave us the go-ahead to be a bit more social so I think we had maybe a month six weeks at the most of being able to be like normal people and then lockdown happened and that was that and were you still at your parents at this point yeah, so I still live at my parents. So right. I've got like an annex built onto there, which I pay I pay the mortgage for. Um, so we've got planning permission to ter- take the roof off of the whole house, whole property, and uh, build up. But that planning permission uh, was dependent on me working to finance it. And as I can't work because I am Arthur's full time carer, it's not going to happen. So we just live as we were before, which is me in an annex, which. I just the bit that I live in is got its own um, garden and front door, quite a big bedroom, a bathroom, and then a kitchen, dining, living area, and that's it. So we just live in here because actually, that's what we can afford, and that's how it works. And how do you do it with your parents and your? Uh, is it they'd be your nieces and nephews, wouldn't they? Yeah. So how do you yeah, see them? As, nephew, yeah. yeah. Do they see you every day or do you do how, how much do you sort of interact with them and how much are you living separate lives? So there's a door that leads between the two houses, which is generally open. So the dog goes between the two houses as she likes. The teenagers are in and out. My mum and dad are in and out. My two often will go in and see grandma and granddad. Yeah. So we see them all the time. When they were younger, I would have some st- some times where I'd be like, I'm shutting the door now because I want to do this by myself. I don't want you all in all the time. Um, and we had quite a lot of periods where in COVID, one of the kids would have sat next to somebody at school that had got COVID and then I'd shut my, lock my door for two weeks or however long. And sometimes that was actually quite nice. But we are a big family, so we don't co-parent my children but I still co-parent the bigger children. Um, it's only actually the two youngest of that lot that are um, require any co-parenting because the others are 20 and 21 now. And what a beautiful example of, you know, a, a, a really blended way of parenting and living. And, you know, it's just a, a different way that, that's really working for you, it sounds like. Yeah, it does. It works really, really well. And what is lovely is that when I talk about families to my children, we're an example of a different family before they even arrived. True. So it isn't a big deal being different because we already live. We lived before them as a different type of family. And that was OK then. And it's OK now, which is just how it is. Exactly. I love it. And so then going back to Arthur, so you are his full-time carer. So does he, yeah. he needs full-time care then, does he? Yeah, so they don't go to nursery because we're building up for another surgery, but we've got to get another five kilograms on him, which is proving really difficult. They don't go to nursery because every time he gets an illness, 
he then either ends up in hospital or on antibiotics and loses quite a lot of weight. So I made the decision that I didn't think it was beneficial, that I would rather be selective about the groups that I went to and socialise with friends and where I could be cautious and have a bit more control than dropping him in to nursery. He also physically wouldn't have coped that much with nursery. Um, he could have, would have only been able to do a few mornings and he would have really struggled. So I made that decision that I just didn't think it was worth it. He needs full, full-time full care in that I couldn't look after him and do another job. Yeah. I couldn't do it, be a teacher because if he went to nursery and I was a teacher, he got a cold. He could be ill for two weeks and I could not be at school for two weeks. And you can't have that level of responsibility and have a child, child like him who requires so much. He has meds throughout the day. He has um, meds at 11, 12 o'clock at night. He has a bottle of milk at that time because he needs the additional calories. Um, he often wakes throughout the night, sometimes because he needs a wee, because he has diuretics, sometimes because he gets pains in his legs because that's common with cardiac problems, sometimes because he has nightmares, bad dreams. Um, it's very unusual for me to get more than six hours broken sleep a night. Sometimes, you know, I can go to sleep at one o'clock by the time I finished everything and he can wake at two and then be awake mm. oh that that's so hard just lack of sleep is just so difficult isn't it oh, it's a form of torture and they're not lying and it is really hard and what's really hard is then he'll go back to sleep at like five o'clock in the morning and Violet then will get up at seven thirty, oh. and I'll be like oh my god please mm. But, you know, she sleeps through it all, whether he's awake or not. He's awake now, happily singing away to himself, chattering, and she's fast asleep in the bunk bed underneath him. Wow. So she sort of learned how to sleep through everything, basically. Well, she learned to sleep in a hospital room where we were True. getting checked, you know, every two hours by nurses. How do you feel about not being able to work because that's a big thing for some people is have you have you made peace with that or do you enjoy it or do you wish it was different I adore being with them they drive me a bit mad sometimes but I adore being with them and I think in some ways I'm lucky because I could be being financially forced to go to work and you know I could be in a situation where I had to work five days a week and I only got to see them at the weekend and that would make me really sad because I'd be missing out on on something that I know I'm not going to be able to repeat again so in lots of ways I feel really lucky that you know I'm given enough money to survive to be able to stay at home with them and to meet his needs sometimes I miss it I miss the person that I used to be but I do also feel that having them has broken me down in a hundred different ways and remade me to be the person a different person but actually probably the person I was supposed to be so I look at the person I was before and think I wouldn't be willing to give up all my evenings and all my weekends to be a wonderful amazing teacher because actually all I want to be is a wonderful amazing mum and they think I'm wonderful and amazing even when I'm really crap because I've had a really shitty day I love your attitude about stuff. It's so it's so great. I love that way of thinking because it you could get into a situation where it's you know it sounds like you're you go through a lot. You know it, it is a lot to deal with, and I just really love the mindset that you've got about it. Does that just come naturally to you, or do you, do you sometimes have to work at that? No, I have to work at it, and 
although I have that mindset and that is the mindset that I work for, there are plenty of times where I sit and struggle and find things really, really difficult because otherwise otherwise I can't I can't be positive for them. And actually they only have me. So if I can't do the things that they need me to do because I'm feeling so caught up in how situation it actually is then that's not fair on them because they're only going to be little ones yeah and do you ever get any time for yourself sometimes they go to sleep um, I'm I'm very lucky in that when they go to when Arthur's gone to sleep or I can um one of the older kids is really good with them so I can put them into bed and then I can go out for dinner with friends or things like that so in that way I do get time to go and be a different person but I don't drink anymore I won't go away overnight I don't really like to leave them too long because actually Arthur struggles with anxiety um, there's lots of meds to be done my mum's eyesight has deteriorated recently so she can't actually be relied upon to see accurately Arthur's meds so I can't really leave her to do those um a lot of him his condition is down to ice to, to looking at him and reading the signs of his body that he's reached his limits or um that he's quite so he needs to rest or you know he's going into respiratory distress that all requires you to see him so it makes me quite anxious leaving him if I don't feel that she can really see all those signs anymore. I haven't drunk since I started trying to conceive because I was trying to conceive. And then I breastfed forever. Ended up with a child who's got very complicated needs that I could end up having to call an ambulance for in the middle of the night. And I need to be able to go into hospital and be able to fight his corner and make sure that I tell them everything and that they don't make any mistakes. And I can't do that if I'm rolling around the floor. And I think what something that's interesting is, as a solo parent, one of the things that can feel a lot is that we are the sole responsible for this child. So if you have a child with a partner, then there is somebody else who is as responsible as you. Whether they take that responsibility is a different question, but you know, t- there's somebody else as responsible for you. Some people find it overwhelming being the one who has all the responsibility. And what it sounds like is you've got all that responsibility and the responsibility is much greater because of the additional needs. So does that sometimes feel overwhelming? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I've got anxiety, I've got PTSD from surgeries and the recovery and things like that, which were really, really tricky. and it is definitely an, you know, an additional not burden, but like weight, um, on on you sometimes that you're always on edge. You know, I can never I can never go to a play a play place and sit down and let them play. Mm. I have to watch him all the time. Um, because he can't get to the top of the slide, and actually, if he can get to the top of the slide, he's probably exerted himself too much, and then will either fall over because he's worn himself out, or he'll be too blue, or you know he needs some support. So I can never, 
never switch off. It's all I'm always hyper aware of where he is and what he's doing, where Violet why Violet is. So in that way, you never you never stop. Which is a lot because one of the advantages as they get older usually is that you don't have to be as on it because they get more independent and I guess you're not experiencing that because you you still have to be as on it in lots of ways it is like having that toddler that you have to watch all the time yeah and will they be going to school next year no so I've made the decision that I'm going to homeschool them right for the same reason but also because I just can't see how actually he can be provided with an inclusive education with his needs as they are currently. Um, and I don't, I'm of the view that education should give you wings. It should open doors. Um, and I think that because of his physical needs at the moment um, and the way um, early years is set up in that they have open access to outside and all these lovely outdoor learning experiences that he wouldn't be able to access. So he would feel excluded and quite cross and be quite difficult and I don't want that to be his experience of education because he can't regulate his temperature. So if it's very hot, he couldn't go outside because he couldn't keep himself cool or his body has to work a lot harder to do that. And if it's cold, he couldn't go outside for a long period of time because he can't regulate his temperature. He burns a lot more calories off. He'll be a lot bluer. Um, it takes him a long time to get warm again. How is Violet in all of this? Do, do you feel like she... Does she understand the situation? So she knows that Arthur's got a tricky heart and that he can't do certain things. And she'll say, oh, Arthur, don't do that. You're going blue. Or sometimes she'll say, just breathe, just breathe. But then I've always been very clear and honest that Arthur's got a tricky heart, so he sometimes needs something different. And the, it doesn't mean that she can't do things. So we go to lots of groups and do lots of things where there is the option for him to participate at his level, but that she can participate at her level. We're very sociable. We see lots of other children. She is very sociable. She likes other children, plays with other children. Arthur, as his ASD has become more apparent, he doesn't really play with other children. He likes other children. He says they're his friends, but he doesn't play with them. Um, he plays with Violet, but he doesn't play with other children. And if Violet is playing with another child, he will quite happily just potter and play on his own. And do they get on? Do they play well together? Yeah, they do. Well, that's nice. Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, they play very differently. And she's much more physical than him. So she'd like to go and bounce on the trampoline. And, and he can't do that. And he knows he can't do that. So they do play differently. But they do absolutely love each other. And today I had a meeting this afternoon um, for Arthur. And Violet went to play at a friend's house without me she was very excited to go and as soon as she was gone Arthur said where's Violet gone and I said she's gone to play with Esme and he was like oh but I miss her oh but I love her oh. and I was like I know but we'll see her later we'll go and pick her up later yes let's go and pick her up now no that's not really going to help is it because we've got a meeting Arthur so you know you need to stay here um so he misses her um and he loves her and when we were in hospital not that long ago, because he had a chest infection, one of the teenagers came and slept in my house with Violet. And um, and she said, Mummy, I was very sad because when I went to sleep, there was nobody in Arthur's bed to talk to me or tell me that he loved me. Oh, that's so sweet. 
And one of the lovely things about having twins is you get that, you know, you get that bond between them, which must be. Yeah. And it's been really helpful in that she has always dragged him along developmentally, which has been really lovely. I breastfed both of them and she was very good at creating a supply and keeping that supply going. Um, And she definitely really helped him in that way when I, because I used to feed both of them at the same time. So she would like trigger the letdown and he would kind of just like live off that. So she was really useful in that way. It was really good having her because she'd do stuff and I'd be like, oh, well, Arthur has to do that. Who do I need to involve? Which medical profession do I need to get involved to support him to be able to do the same thing? Um, So she kind of dragged him along in that way, which was very good. Um, I think she made it easier for me to pick up the signs that he was not developing in a neurotypical way um, as well because she doesn't have any of those signs and... I could see her moving away and his behaviour not changing in the way that it needed to. So I was very quick to to be able to contact speech and language, which we were already under for his speech, and to be able to point out all the things. Because I, as a teacher, I dealt with it lots anyway, so I knew what I was looking at. But she made it very obvious because she's a bright button. Yeah. And he's very bright, but he's very different. Yeah. That. And um, what is the next step? So you said that he was gearing up for another surgery. Yep. So we don't know what surgery that he'll have. He may have um, one and a half ventricle repair, which would give him a better quality of life now and a longer life. Or he may go down the half a heart route, which is he's had one of the procedures for and there's three he didn't need the first one but he's had the second the glen and then there's another procedure after and if he has that that is life limiting um and he will have a better quality of life in the short term but in general they don't the the children don't live past kind of young adulthood at the most gosh and how do you deal with that you just suck it up and keep going (laughs) yeah cry in the cry in the bathroom when they're asleep and keep going yeah and put, just sort of be thinking of them and what they need and focusing on that yeah and just trying to make as you know life as good as possible with as many happy memories as you can yeah julia you've got such an amazing attitude on it um so inspirational lots of the people who listen are trying to decide whether to you know, become a solo parent? Have you got any advice or anything else that you wanted to Um, share? Don't wait, definitely just do it. Um, It was the best thing I ever did. Um, It's the best job I've ever had. And it, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't thank my lucky stars that I had them both. Oh, that's so lovely. So lovely to hear. And I think if you, um, what you said at the beginning, I think it's important that you had the fertility test and that gave you the the speed that you had to go at because you under, you had the data to make the decision then, didn't you? Yeah, I think I could have divvered about it for ages and thought, oh, well, should I, maybe I'll meet the right person, you know, bowed down to, I suppose, not the pressure from my mum, but kind of, you know, her wanting that happy ever after for me. Whereas I just didn't have that time. And if I did it all again, I'd do it five years earlier. Yeah. At least I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with the data 
meeting all these people that were maybes or could have been. So I just would have made the future that I actually wanted, which if I met somebody now, I'd be dating them for the person they are, not the future they could possibly give me. I, I, it's so interesting because I think so many people feel the same. And when I speak to people, so many people say, I wish I would have just done it earlier. Um, I spent so long agonizing over whether I should do it. Was it the right decision? And now I've done it. I think, oh, why did I spend all that time thinking about it? I should have just done it. So I think it's so common to feel like that. But when you're in it, when you're trying to make the decision, it can be a lot harder. Yeah, and I think you let all the things that you see stand in your way. So I genuinely wanted, you know, the perfect nursery and all those things. And I didn't get any of them and they didn't matter. You know, my house isn't perfect. There isn't enough space, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, those aren't the important things at the end, are they? No, they're not. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much for chatting to us today. It's so inspirational to hear your story. Sending you all the best wishes for the next um, stage of the, the medical treatment and hoping it really all goes well for you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast and would like to access bonus episodes featuring donor-conceived people, psychologists and other experts, you can head over to my website, thestalkandi.com to subscribe to the Thriving Solo membership. For $2.99 a month, you'll get access to members-only episodes as well as the entire back catalogue. You'll get access to useful resources and a monthly community call, which are a great opportunity to meet people in a similar situation to you. On my website, you can also find more information about the coaching I offer. You can also follow me on Instagram at thestalkandi.com to get an insight into the realities of solo parent life.